This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hey, everybody. This is Z Prime On the Grid. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron Hardick. Aaron, how have you been? I've been good, Dylan. Lots of energy news happening over the past week. I don't know if you saw, and this is unrelated to today's topic, but for me, it's very exciting because I follow electric vehicles and the the transportation transformation quite closely. And Lyft has committed to going to an all-electric fleet, I believe, by 2030. That was some recent news that's been buzzing about. So I'm really excited to see that and encouraged to see a ride-sharing company kind of take the lead on uh, electrifying transfer transportation. So I'm I'm in pretty high spirits because of that, Dylan. I think that's a really cool direct direction they're going. And I, I hope to see uh, more of that. I hope that becomes a standard. And they've, you know, they've led the way before. So We'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, but anyway, uh, so today we're talking about uh, we're talking about renewables in the year 2020 and beyond. And to talk with us about that, we have Brian Murphy, energy tax partner at Ernst and Young. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you? Dylan, Aaron, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Uh, well. We're happy to have you. Um, so we're in a period of time right now, um, as a country, as a as a global populace, where we're trying to figure out how to create a new normal of everyday life. And every, of course, most of our everyday lives include our jobs and business. So one data set people are looking at as reopening, for lack of a better word, uh, continues is been the environmental impacts of the quarantine period. So we've talked about how this has affected things like green building standards on the show before, but uh, I want to sort of look at the utility side today. So how did utilities view renewables before 2020, and how have those views changed uh, as a result of uh, the pandemic and other factors of this year? So as terrible as the pandemic has been for the U.S., right, both in terms of the impact directly from the pandemic and the economic impact, it's honestly really showing the resilience of a sector like renewable energy. One of the silver linings, if you will, of quarantine is starting to show up in carbon reductions. We're seeing some states with as much as 30, even 40% drops in CO2 emissions when you compare that back to quarter over quarter, 2019 levels. And a key part of those reductions for our utilities is that roughly 14% of those reductions appear to be energy related. So there's definitely pressure coming from the pandemic on renewable energy certainly in the short term. 2020 forecasts for wind and solar installations are both down in the US, but the wind is down roughly 5%, and that might be creeping up a bit as time goes on. 
and the solar's down roughly 10% uh, as an over-outlook of what will get installed in 2020. But the long view for renewables, it's relatively intact, and it's likely to actually draw more interest from investors going forward, in my view, as we emerge from the pandemic. EY put out a report just recently. We call it the RECHI report. That's a Renewable Energy Country Attractiveness Index. And in that report, the U.S. has found its way back to number one, the number one country in terms of attractiveness for renewable energy investment. And they overtook China to take that number one slot. In that report, one of the key focus areas is the rising focus on what we call ESG standards. So ESG is it's a standard of reporting and it focuses on a company's ability to deliver long-term value and that long-term value through inclusion of uh, environmental, social, and governance standards in the company's strategic plan and in their goals. The pandemic, right, and this economic crisis that we're in really highlights the significant carbon reductions are, are they're really possible and investors particularly those that put some value on those factors the EDS and the G we're likely to see incremental increases in investment from those types of investors particularly in renewables if they see that linkage between the renewable energy assets and the long-term value proposition around the environment society and governance so when we put all that together I'm not seeing utilities waver in how they view re renewable energy. If anything, it seems like the pandemic and the economic crisis might actually be reinforcing the overall outlook for renewables in the U.S. Utilities are going to have to act now. The transformation, this move to uh, carbon reduction, it's happening now and it's happening faster than it ever has before. And the demand from consumers, it's only going to accelerate that transition into, you know, in a large, to a large degree, renewable energy. So how would you describe some of the, some of the biggest disruptions from an operations standpoint uh, caused by, you know, work, caused by workers need, uh, needing to be safe and having stayed home for a while? Sure. So impacts renewables they've they've been significant they're not different than many other industries a lot of other sectors job losses have been significant the solar sector identifies that they have roughly a quarter of a million jobs in the sector over 250,000 jobs and the outlook right now is that upwards of half of those jobs could be at risk certainly in the near term. Uh, the wind sector has roughly half that number of jobs in the U.S., but the current projections are that somewhere around 35,000 of those jobs, they're also at risk. So the jobs are a significant component of the disruption that the sector's seeing. But the, 
the overall pandemics also put a real strain on, as you pointed out, the availability of labor, the supply chain, just to get access to the materials that are needed to maintain current operations, maybe more importantly, fuel that build out of renewable energy that we're seeing, you know, a, a notable dip in, uh, certainly at least in terms of what's going to get built in 2020. But as I said before, the, the long-term outlook, it's actually quite strong for renewables, certainly in the U.S. And, and, and that's in spite of, and, and not to minimize the, the, the impacts that we're seeing from COVID and the economic downturn, but these, particularly renewable energy, these are really long-term infrastructure investments and the decision to deploy that capital to build those resources. There are a number of variables that go into it, and it really is a long-view decision to make that investment and looking beyond the pandemic, uh, the outlook for renewables, it, it's quite good. Brian, let's talk a little bit about that long-term impact or how you see this playing out in the long-term, specifically around what the benefits are of transitioning to more renewables. There's this kind of interesting dichotomy at play. You mentioned this real, real emergence of ESG and tying that to long-term strategic initiatives within utilities or even big CNI firms that are citing their own renewables. So you have that strategic alignment, but then like you mentioned, having to deal with the constraints brought on by the pandemic, supply chain constraints, labor constraints. So it seems like right now, short term, there's kind of um, a, a setback or a halt on renewables because of those can constraints. But again, as you mentioned, we're seeing how renewables align with longer term initiatives, strategic initiatives. So can you talk about what the long-term benefits would be of incorporating more renewables into the energy mix and how those benefits play out across a variety of groups, both customers and utilities and businesses who own the renewables themselves. Can you talk about how you just see or what that long-term outlook looks like? Sure, absolutely, Aaron. So when I think about the journey of renewables to where we are today, there's a few factors that really have led to this inflection point of renewables being built out at an unprecedented rate. A lot of the key drivers for the demand come back to that E, S, and G. It does come back to CNI. It comes back to the consumer, to the customer. And the overall preference for and now evolution toward a demand for a reduction in carbon emissions. It's really about generational legacies. What are we going to do to protect our resources, 
and what are we going to do to set up our country for success and for future generations. Some of the barriers or limitations that we've encountered on the journey are cost. The cost of renewable energy, certainly as we look back several years, five, 10, even 20 years, the cost is a challenge. Any new technology, including renewables, tend to be very, you know, relatively expensive out of the gate. Uh, efficiency, whether it's wind, solar, other technologies, the, the ability to generate meaningful, efficient power, you know, as a result of the capital investment. These are all contributing factors to say we all want carbon reductions, but cost matters, efficiency matters. And another limitation has been incorporating those what a lot of folks would refer to as intermittent resources into our existing grid and infrastructure. And that intermittency, right, whether the cloud is over and blocks the sun or the wind stops blowing, a challenge is that that renewable resource is intermittent and not as reliable as, let's say, coal or gas, a fuel that you can burn and control. But all three of those factors, we've seen significant shift. The cost of renewables has declined dramatically over the years, making the renewables much more affordable, both at a, a utility scale and at a residential scale for those that want distributed energy, for those that want to move all the way to putting panels on a rooftop. The efficiency has been you know, a huge catalyst and can't be separated from the cost. But wind's ability to capture that wind and convert it to energy, the solar's ability to capture that sun and convert it to energy, there's been significant gains over the years, exponential gains. And then we get into that intermittency, the, the struggle of having increasing amounts of renewable energy on our grid introducing the volatility of the grid and putting increased strain on the, those other baseload resources, the coal plants, the gas plants, even the nuclear plants. But that intermittency is likely to be mitigated to a large degree by another emerging technology, storage. So we're seeing the rise of battery technology and a lot of times when we think of batteries, we think of them, you know, in the EV market, in cars and in the fleet. And whether it's cars or even trucks, trucks for utilities are moving the EV. Batteries incorporated into the solar and into the wind farms, those utility scale assets, are now proving themselves out to help power condition, to smooth out that volatility. So when demand is low, but the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, charge up those batteries and use the batteries to smooth out that intermittency going forward. So all these factors are a confluence. They're all coming together at the same time. Demand is rising and the efficiency and affordability are intersecting. And that combined with governmental policies and incentives are all putting us at this tipping point where we see the rapid deployment of renewables. Yeah, I, I know that we're going to talk a little bit about um, 
policy in a second. But one other thing I, I did want to say. So, you know, we've we've talked about storage on the show. We actually just released an episode um, with Form Energy and Great River Energy, and they partnered on a project to to implement Form's new one megawatt battery storage system that will provide Great River Energy with almost, I think it's about 150 hours of storage duration. So much longer than a lot of the lithium ion four hour batteries that we're seeing on the market. So significant developments in storage technology coming along to, to like you said, mitigate that intermittency issue. But one other thing that I'm also seeing drive this transformation is related to what you mentioned around the generational legacy. Like, What are we going to do today to set up future generations for success? And, and what I'm seeing is really this transition into what is sometimes being referred as decarbonization transparency. So big CNI organizations, and you're, you're seeing this with within big tech companies too, they're trying to be a lot more transparent about these decarbonization initiatives and what exactly they're doing to decarbonize, how they're going about doing it, how well that transformation is going, because allowing or putting that transparency out there allows customers and the general public to get a better grasp on how exactly this transition is going and and where we are along that line. Have you seen or have you heard kind of a similar thing in in organizations trying to be more transparent around some of their decarbonization initiatives, particularly around implementing and and using renewables? I do, absolutely. And at that CNI level, we've seen an evolution there as well. And it's arrived at a point now where you see major corporations not only seeking out renewable energy, but directly investing in renewable energy projects. And that's clearly a reflection of demand by customers, that customers value the renewable energy. They value the initiative to reduce dependency on the carbon generating assets. And that ties in to the general, you know, discussion we had around legacy and what customers want for, for, for themselves, for their children and for future generations. And one of the things in my mind as I've watched this evolve over 20 years or more is the willingness of consumers to assign value to that carbon reduction and and pay mm-hmm. for that carbon reduction. There was part of the journey where folks would absolutely support carbon reduction, but then the question would be at what cost? And maybe I've been traveling too many years. I remember when the airline at one point said, hey, you can you can buy your ticket and you can buy an incremental for an incremental cost, the ability to have your carbon offset for this trip. Those programs a decade, 15 years ago, were not very successful. But today, the ESG, in my view, is a 
direct reflection of investors all the way through customers and consumers assigning value to a company's impact on the environment, a company's impact on society, wanting, to your point, the transparency to understand how those companies are accomplishing that. They want to see disclosures. They want to see discussions. Where does the power come from for a company that I'm supporting and buying their products and goods? And their willingness, a, cons a consumer willingness to start to sign value and pay for that has been a real trigger to the acceleration. And I would tie it back that the willingness to pay for it is happening at the same time that in a significant number of regions around the country, maybe not everywhere yet, but renewables are becoming self-sufficient. They are becoming economic and cost-effective even without government, federal, state, and local subsidies. So that competitive ability of, a, of renewable energy to, to go head-to-head -head with other technologies hit the carbon reduction goals, hit that long view uh, demand that consumers are putting in place and do it at a reasonable cost. That, that's, that's really the, the fuel behind this, this surge we're seeing. That's really interesting, Brian. Um, like Aaron said, uh, I did wanna spend some time in this episode talking about legislation and policy and that, 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 that angle of it. So when we talk about the future of uh, US renewable energy, is the coordination of federal and state agencies active or is that even relevant? Is that the right uh, like lens to be looking it through? How, how effective would the sort of coordinated effort be if, it, if, that, if, if that's the case? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll start with what seems like a safe answer, and that answer is that both are important. Both have their roles and both are significant. But to a large degree, the federal and state policies and, and legislation that are impacting renewable energy, they're fairly mutually exclusive and independent of each other. Not entirely, but they are very separate in how they shape and move uh, the renewable energy sector uh, forward. So federal incentives, let me start with federal. Without a doubt, federal incentives have been a primary catalyst for renewable growth in the U.S. for at least two decades. In utility-scale wind, it's been the production tax credit. And for, for solar, it's been the investment tax credit huge catalysts and are directly responsible for the growth of these two technologies in the U.S. And wind being more mature than solar, wind was being deployed at a much greater rate than solar, certainly back in the 1990s and early 2000 era. So maturity-wise, wind has advanced quicker than solar, although solar is moving at a very rapid rate in terms of price declines and technology improvements. But both of those credits are being phased down, if not phased out, by the federal government right now. So the wind 
production tax credit. This is the last year that you can qualify a wind project for that production tax credit. And it was on path to expire last year and only at the very end of the year was there a one-year extension for wind that could start their construction this year and still get the credit. Solar this year has started its similar four-year journey to a credit reduction. The wind phases out, the solar phases down to a much lower amount. On the federal, I'd say legislative front, particularly in response to COVID, the federal government so far has responded to pressures that the renewable energy industry has experienced. The IRS, when I say the government, has responded. We mentioned that, that Congress extended the PTC a, for a year, but the IRS also came out and put out some really needed guidance for wind and solar projects that were struggling to advance this year because of the shortage of labor, because of the pressure on the supply chain. So there are things happening in, in DC to support renewable energy. And when we get to hopefully uh, later this summer, maybe it's late July, there may be another round of stimulus out of the federal government. And things like refundability of these tax credits are under discussion in DC right now by, by, by all the stakeholders. Uh, whether or not we see an extension of the solar, of the ITC for solar, or whether or not we start to see the emergence of incentives or more diverse incentives for storage. These are all things that mm -hmm. are under discussion. But that's the federal. When we look at states, state incentives have had a significant impact in the past and they continue today. I would point out just a few. Then um, there's a variety, as you would expect. They're very different across the U.S. Not every state has incentives, but California has a an exemption for property tax for solar assets. Hawaii has investment tax credits for wind and solar. New Mexico has uh, government-backed revenue bond programs to raise capital to advance investments in renewables. Maybe more important than the economic incentives that states are putting forward, I would point to their requirements, their renewable portfolio standards, renewable energy standards that states are putting in place, have put in place, and continue to modify on a regular basis. Those requirements like you would expect can vary dramatically across the states and how they're how they're structured and how they uh, are applied to utilities but historically though you know they've responded to these requirements by going out and signing long-term power purchase agreements so if a utility has a 10 percent renewable energy standard by a date certain they will anticipate that and the plans that they put forward to their utility commission for how they're going to grow and how they're going to make investments in their generation often either include utility renewable energy directly, but historically it would 
more often include the signing of agreements to buy that power from some independent power producer. But both the federal and state have had tremendous impacts. If I had to point to one ongoing uh, set, set of policies, it would be those renewable level, uh, those renewable standards, portfolio and energy standards that we see at the state level that are really driving utility behavior today. States are really driving this. And I can't say that's out of line with a lot of the drivers for the energy transition. It seems like grassroots organizations and local efforts have influenced more change in the energy industry than federal efforts, just in general. But Brian, I wanted to get back to something you mentioned, and that was PPAs. So we're seeing this transition away from these long-term power purchase agreements. Can you talk about that a little bit, why that's happening, and maybe what does it mean for utilities and how can they go about integrating more renewables without PPAs? So I think that's one of the most telling indicators of this transition to renewables that you've hit on. I Sometimes I use a chart when I'm giving presentations and it's exactly what you just said. It shows the bubble chart that shows the volume, size and duration of power purchase agreements being signed over the last 10 years between independent power producers and utilities. And exactly what you just said, it is a very linear, sharp downward slope. Utilities are signing less power purchase agreements for smaller quantities of power for shorter tenures. And in my view, the reason they're on that trend is directly correlated to the increasing renewable energy standards and demands that their states and their public utility commissions are putting on them. When that number was small 10, 15 years ago, fulfilling that standard with a power purchase agreement made sense. The independent power producer had all the experience in the development of the, of the technology all the way through the construction and the business model was working for both parties. But as these requirements increase in, in states, there's many states now that have 100% targets. There's cities with 100% targets. There's companies self-assigning self targets. As, but in particular, the renewable standards imposed on the utilities ramp up. Utilities know that there's only two ways, two paths forward for their growth. That's adding customers, which isn't always in their control, or it's building their rate base. It's spending capital in a smart way that is approved by regulators, that improves their system, and is capital that they earn a return on. So to that end and to your point, you see this steady decline in PPAs that utilities are willing to sign. We're seeing this corresponding increase in the amount of renewable energy that utilities are looking to build. They wanna build it themselves. That, in a large way, is part of their own growth story. We would say vertically integrated, where they own the generation all the way to the customer, is being able to 
be that holistic energy provider. And for these utilities, they really want to start to find a path toward building and owning these assets themselves. Now, as that starts to happen, as utilities start to work with their regulators and submit plans that say, here's our proposal to meet the renewable energy standard, and that includes the utility investing directly in that renewable energy asset and owning it. I do think that the independent power producers model, it's going to need to adapt. I don't think it is at the complete exclusivity of the utility taking on the renewable energy. But the IPP is great at a lot of things. The development cycle of a renewable energy project, where to site it, the permitting, the inner ties to the grid, understanding the technology, that whole life cycle of development for many independent power producers, they're also exceptional at the construction of the renewable energy project. And they certainly have the experience in operating those long-term renewable energy project, projects. So I think one potential adjustment to this current model that might play out in my view is the utilities elevating their direct ownership of renewable energy and investing capital directly into it but relying on those experienced independent power producers to help them do it efficiently, to bring that development experience, that construction experience, the supply chain experience, and combining all that and providing long-term operator services for utilities that need that service to really be that efficient, holistic provider for their customers. That makes sense because you answered what was going to be my follow-up question. What happens to these IPPs when renew when utilities start to really build out and own their renewables? But it, it sounds like you're saying you you envision them still being part of that process, uh, or really owning the process of getting those renewables on the grid. So, yeah, I, I think that makes sense, and I I would yeah. understand how IPPs do contribute a lot of value from that perspective. And to your point, an IPP that is forward-looking and understanding their customer, that utility, in my view, that's one path forward for them to really continue to capitalize on their strengths. But there's also, I think, a cautionary message here for IPPs that are not taking a hard look at where utilities are headed, that if mm-hmm. they don't adapt and really figure out what they're great at and how their business is going to change, this could be you know, a, a far more difficult transition for those IPPs. Uh, so we moving into uh, uh, the last sort of piece to uh, the renewable energy picture. Um, I, ca- I just want to touch on the sort of uh, renewables goals that a lot of that states and cities have uh, have set for themselves, which we've discussed a couple of times on the show 
before. So we, we don't need to go too deep into like the benefits of that. But uh, we are, what's interesting is we are moving closer to actual milestones on those. Like 20, 2020, there can be there there could be five five year milestones uh, for some agreements that were made super early. There could be ten year milestones on the horizon. How are we ensuring? success on these efforts when the approaches can vary so wildly from utility to utility? Sure. Let me come at it this way. And Aaron, you said this earlier, the requirements for renewable standards, it's very much at a state level, right? And it continues to be a state level issue. But utilities are accountable. They're accountable to their state level regulators in terms of what they're going to build, how they spend their capital, when they're going to build it, what types of returns that they expect to earn on that investment. And so there's a there's there's a a a, a relationship here between that renewable energy standard and the programs that utilities put forward for their future growth. But there's also significant differences as you just pointed out, Dylan, on a state-by-state -state basis in terms of where utilities are starting from. When you look across the country, you might take a hypothetical you know, utility in the South or Southeast that is predominantly natural gas, maybe some nuclear. When you compare that utility to one in the Midwest that's maybe predominantly coal, they're starting from two very different places. So having each state set their own renewable standards in the context of where they are and in the context of where they're headed, I think makes a lot of sense. And every utility's journey toward carbon reduction is gonna be vastly different. So for those reasons, right, I think um, the way it's working today makes a lot of sense. The federal government at different times over the years has entertained being uh, more involved. They've introduced, or just, they haven't introduced, but they've talked about things, including broader energy policy. You know, broader energy policies. They've at least considered taxes, maybe a tax on carbon. But the general mindset, federally, in my experience, is to leave things to the states, particularly when approach that's being taken by the states is working. So Dylan, you'd ask, are they are these different states making progress? Are they really trending in the right directions toward these standards? One of the indicators that progress is being made and that these standards are actually getting closer to being met in my view, is to look at the amount of renewable energy that's being actually installed across the US and just compare that to what the minimum standards are when you look strictly at the renewable portfolio standard or the energy standard and look at that linear in terms of where a state's trying to get. When we look at those two data points in aggregate for the US, at a US level, and we look back starting around 2000, the amount of renewable energy 
that's actually been installed in the U.S. is well over double what was required if only the minimum amount of renewable energy was being deployed to meet those standards. So the point, in my view, is that the standards are working and they're, and they're effective, but the rate of installation of renewables in total, right, and every state's different, in total is moving at a rate that's significantly faster than the government's plan. And the reason, or there's, I'm sure there's a number of reasons, but one of the key reasons why a plan for renewable energy deployment would move faster than the government has outlined comes back to the things we've been talking about. Demand by consumers, access, and affordability. So as I sit back and try to take a wider view of renewable energy and everything we talked about today, the demand for renewable energy, it's showing up in different ways. And utilities specifically are genuinely assessing how they're going to address their own growth and their own outlook and how renewables fit in that for each utility. But another, I'll say real example, is the rise of certain programs. I think they're commonly referred to as community choice aggregation programs or community choice aggregators. The one I tend to look to first is California. And so California is one of, I think it's seven states that it might be more now that have these community choice aggregation programs. And then it's most simple. That program allows municipalities, cities to to take their collective buying power of energy and leave their incumbent utility and secure their power on their own to go sign their own power purchase agreements in order to secure the renewable energy content that they want. So if they view their utility might be making progress, but isn't going fast enough or isn't meeting their needs, these community choice aggregators can take their city and go get their power elsewhere. And the metric that strikes me that these are impactful programs, is California's load in total, 15% of California's entire load has left their incumbent utilities and that power is now being secured by these community choice aggregators another movement to watch i would i would look to the increase in distributed generation rooftop solar all of these factors are catalysts and they're all contributing to that regulated utility being very thoughtful about wanting to increase their direct ownership of renewable energy. They want to be participants in this transition. They want to lead it for their customers in a lot of different ways. It's the most direct path to accomplish many of their goals. It satisfies the, the utility desire to grow their business. 
it does it in a way that complies with the requirements that they're getting and the targets they're getting from their states and from their regulators. And maybe most importantly, it's fulfilling the expectations and the demands of their customers. Those are their retail customers and at an increasing rate, it's it's CNI as well. It's consumers, it's industrials. Uh, well put, uh, well put, Brian. Thank you for thank you for that top-down overview of uh, the renewable space. We, 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 I know we came at it from a lot of angles, so I, I'm, I appreciate the sort of full picture we've gotten here. Thanks for being on to lay that out for us. Absolutely, Dylan. Aaron, uh, th th thanks for being on and helping us uh, s suss out the important aspects of the future of renewables. Thanks, Dylan. I you know, really enjoyed chatting with you, Brian. I had a lot of questions and I, and I do still have a lot of questions around what it means to decarbonize the grid, what it means when utilities increase their ownership of renewables, what happens to the other folks who were owning renewables. A lot of a lot of outstanding questions, but I think a lot of my questions were answered. So thank you, Brian, for that. I know that after wrapping up with the, the CCA and the, the DER conversation really leads me to think about what does that mean from a grid reliability standpoint? So maybe we should have you back on to talk about how do you control and keep the grid reliable when you have all of these disparate owners of generation sources? But it, it was good to chat with you today, Brian. Aaron, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me and, and look forward to talking to you again in the future. And for our audience, you can find our research in media at cprime.com. You can find us on social media at DY Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at cprime underscore research. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.